Pergamum or Pergamos. Depends on which translation you're reading. Um, I think Pergamos is just the way that the Greeks said it. Uh, but I've seen commentators call it both. Anyway, let's do a quick review. Um, chiastic form, what is it? A, B, B, A, that's right. Okay, so it's A, B, B, A. And what does that actually mean? And where's the emphasis? The last. That's it. You are doing really good. It's on the last. So your emphasis is here on a, on a standard chiasm. All right? The chiastic form that we have for the churches is called an, uh, depending on how you read it, I'll, I'll call it an, an ex-chiastic. Because right here, an X is inserted. All right? And so what this X is, is the X now takes the emphasis from the A. I know, it's like a math equation, right? So, but this is a literary form that is used in uh, Jewish literature or, or ancient literature to bring emphasis to a point. Um, Jesus used it extensively, and people that, it's almost funny because once you realize what this is, you find it all over the scriptures. And then it's, it's, Cool once you know what this is because then you can find out what the focus of the statement is. is. So we use as, as an example uh, Jesus' statement, you can't serve two masters. Two masters. You'll love the one, hate the other, or despise the one and give your allegiance to another. Right? No man can serve two masters. So the emphasis is here. And he says the same thing twice to bring emphasis to his original statement. Okay, so when you see this, you start finding this throughout Scripture. So the, uh, the, the letter to the seven churches is a, chi a, chi a, chi a chiasm, or is in chiastic form. And the three that we're now focusing on are the X. And they are Pergamum, Thyatira, and Is it Smyrna? Sardis. I always get those two mixed up. Sardis. Okay. Now, out of the three here, Thyatira tends to be the central focal point. It is the longest message to all the churches. We'll get to that next week. And we may start a little bit on it this week. But... Um, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis form a kind of an arrowhead in a trajectory of what the, the, the message to the seven churches is about. And it is a warning message um, because it really does paint a picture of what the church faces and will face throughout the ages. All right? Um, as we have said, uh, Pergamum is... Anybody remember what was going on at Pergamum? Tolerance. As we will see, this, I don't like that. It's not right. I have to redo it. Tolerance. Tolerance to what? 
false teaching. So, they were tolerant to false teaching. Well, when this takes its full course, what does false teaching bring about? Error of sin. And sin ultimately leads to, that's right, Sardis is the dead church. All right? And so, when you read these things, you're going to find out some things about the character of God that our culture does not like. And as we discuss these things, I want you to keep in mind that God does not concern himself with what our culture says he should be like. Nor does he concern himself with what you think he should be like. If what we as believers think about God does not line up with what Scripture actually says about him, then who's in the wrong? We are. And our society has spent a great deal of time telling us what God should be like, in their opinion. And when we read these letters, we're going to find out that God is who he is. And some of the things that we're going to be confronted with in this are somewhat alarming. Because I'll just tell you right now, in Thyatira, his judgment is, I will kill her children. For their unrepentance. That doesn't sound like a loving God. That's what he says. Here, in Pergamum, there's no room for tolerance. Now, that's a big buzzword in our culture today. God is not a tolerant God. He's not a compromised God. Sin is sin. It is wrong. And a holy God will not stand for sin. And one of the greatest things in our culture today that diminishes the witness of the church is its compromise and its tolerance. And this is the theme of these three, these three churches. And we're going to get into some things that are going to be like, for example, in Thyatira, I'll tell you right now that the big issue was that people were involved in sin because it, it, if they weren't, they lost their livelihood. And one of the, um, how many of you guys know Tertullian, the church father? Tertullian confronted a guy. That was involved in idolatry because of his business practices, which was common in, in the city that Tertullian uh, was the presbyter or the uh, bishop in. And he confronted the guy and he said, hey, your business practices, you're involved in idolatry. And the guy said, well, I must, I, I, this is my livelihood. After all, I must live. And Tertullian simply said these words to him, must you? So... What we saw at, Sarda, uh, at Smyrna was that people chose God over their livelihood because it required that. And in many instances, there are things in our culture today that we have to choose either our livelihood or godliness. And we've created a gospel that says we can live in the space of compromise because after all, God wants us to be blessed and happy. But these letters here demonstrate that that's not always the case. 
that the highest calling is not your livelihood, that the highest calling is to honor God and put Him first. Any questions on that? So the, the, this, is, this is a hard section. I mean, every time I read through it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got, I got to do this. I've got to, this area needs a little work. And that's why I tell my wife all the time, I think the greatest tragedy in eschatology is the fact that dispensationalism has shoved revelation off into a future context where we don't apply it today. I think we have lost an unimaginable lesson and blessing. I could teach the entire gospel, the entire scripture from Revelation. So, anyway, that's, that's what we're going to be going toward today uh, or, or over the next several weeks. And right now we're just going to finish up Pergamum. So it's the, it's the Chiism. What did we say last week about Pergamum? It's the capital city. Um, if Ephesus was the New York of Asia... Pergamum was the Washington, D.C. That, hence, John calls it the seat of Satan. All right? Why, um, what was, uh, what was that, I mean, what did that, why, why did he call it that? Do we remember? Throne shape, temple of Zeus. Grace said Zeus. Anybody else? Yeah, I'm sorry? Yeah, the Rome and the beast. So you have the three things going on. You have, um, I can never remember. Asclepios. The Asclepios, the Savior. Um, so you have... That's one of, that was their primary God. People came from all over Asia and all over the world to be healed at the temple of Sclepios. And then you had a throne-shaped temple for Zeus. But the primary reason was what Grace said was that it was the seat of the government of the Roman Empire, which was anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-Christ. And so Satan, which is the beast, is using his governmental, using the system of his government to inflict persecution on the church at Pergamum. Okay? Now, what are some of the other things that we talked about? Anybody remember? Sword? Anything with a sword? What does the sword mean? Why is it? I'm sorry? Authority. The words of the one with the two-edged sword. Sharp two-edged sword. That's the way Jesus identifies himself. Why is that important? Because authority, yes, but how does that apply to this particular situation? That's true. So Jesus has a heavenly spiritual authority in exacting what? Judgment. Okay, why is this important to the people of Pergamum? Yeah, that's right. So, and I can't remember the exact name of what that was, but I can find it here. Um, it's uh, Ias Gladii, which is the 
ability to execute judgment capriciously, really, to just say, oh, you're dead. And the symbol, as I understand it, is a sword turned hilt up, um, which was the, the symbol that they went. So this has to do with governmental power to execute judgment. So when Jesus came to the church and he said, I am the one, the words of the one who wields the sharp two-edged sword, it's a direct statement against the governmental officials that are wielding judgment. What he's saying there is what Bob just said, that my authority is greater. That my authority, the authority of God is eternal. It trumps the temporal authority. So which one should we fear? This goes back to the statement where Jesus said, do not fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can throw the soul into hell. That's what that picture is. Okay, so the Pergamums understood this. Or the Pergam, yeah, Pergaman, Pergaminians, Pergaminians. It sounds like you stutter, doesn't it? <laughs> People from Pergamum. There you go. Okay, so we talked about that. We talked about where Satan has his throne. Um, now, there's the next phrase where it says, "But you hold fast." To my, let's read this real quick first so that we get the context. Um, where is it? Where is it? Here we go. Shall I read? All right. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold, fast to, uh, you hold fast my name, and you did, did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there that hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Back to the... The description of who Jesus is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which is parabolic. Remember what we talked about last week. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay. So, we've talked about... The sharp two-edged sword, we've talked about um, where Satan has his throne. Yet you hold fast my name, and you, will not deny, uh, you did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And we talked a little bit about this. What does this mean? Yet you hold fast my name. Yes. That, that's what that means, actually. So you hold fast, you do not compromise. But in this particular instance, what, is, what does this mean specifically to the people of Pergamum? We spoke about it briefly last week. If you don't remember, I, 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 I get it. What does that mean? Yeah. It, it, it does. Um, I don't know where that microphone is. It does. Um, does it have to do with Antipas' martyrdom? It does. Uh, it has to do with the persecution as a whole, Antipas refused to do this. What was required by the Roman emperor 
to stand and curse the name of Christ, to publicly curse the name of Christ, the name of Jesus. Renounce it by cursing it. And so when Jesus said, you hold fast my name, especially in the days of Antipas, because Antipas was probably required to do this and he refused. Now, Rick said something last week, and I think it's Jewish tradition. I can't find it anywhere. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying I, I've never heard it before. It, it makes perfect sense that Antipas was healing in the name of Jesus. And because it was a city uh, that worshipped Asclepios, uh, the healer, that they tried to get him to stop healing in the name of Jesus and renounce the name of Jesus, he refused. And what became of him? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Okay. So the story the the story goes that uh, Antipas was martyred by what's called the brazen bull, and that was a Roman. I can't remember who it was, Damocles, I think, or one of the, uh, I can't remember, uh, what's his name? Domitian, yeah, I always get them mixed up, I am not a Roman historian. They built a brazen bull, it was hollow inside, with the idea of putting a person into it, rolling it over a fire, and just letting it simmer for a while. Now, I told you that I can't think of a, a worse way to die. I personally cannot think of one. Let's try together, shall we? Um, so apparently even in the face of such a horrific way to die the Pergamum church held fast to the name of, of Jesus so that's what that phrase has to do with you did not deny my faith even, even in the days of Antipas um, so what Jesus is saying here is that the opposition to the Pergamum church had not led to any diminishment of zeal for the name of Jesus had led to anybody denying his name or led to anyone breaking faith with him. Uh, we already talked about that, the reference to any martyr, Antipas of Greek tense demonstrates. So the, the, martyrdom, the martyrdom to Antipas, so I want you guys to understand this. In, uh, in Pergamum, it's, it seems clear that Antipas is uh, a one-time deal. That there was always the threat of persecution in this city. And the people lived under that. But that, that the idea of actually dying for your faith was not just a sweeping thing. It didn't happen like every week. It wasn't like something that like when Nero was... Uh, emperor in Rome where they just rounded you up as a Christian and tacked you to a, bathed you in pitch, tacked you to a post and lit you on fire for a party that he was having. Um, that was a horrific place to live, uh, circumstance to live under. But it appears in Pergamum that Antipas was either the only martyr or the first. Okay, does that... 
So I, we, we want to get the idea that it wasn't just a sweeping thing, but that Jesus is commending them in the face of this, what could have been the initiation of something that was going on, that he wanted to come to them and say, look, I commend you on this thing. Gird up your loins, so to speak, because this could, this may be the first of many. All right. The clause where Satan has his throne underscores the unseen source of such persecutions, which is one of the major reasons for the book of Revelation. So remember we go back to the beginning of the introduction to Revelation. What did we say that the idea of Revelation was? One of the biggest themes of Revelation was? Yes, but it demonstrates and it shows in symbolic language the war that we're up against. And it demonstrates to us, and this is one of the reasons why I said I think it's a tragedy that we don't read Revelation regularly in our churches. Because it, it brings face to face to all of us the spiritual aspect of the war that is arrayed against us. We tend to be, especially in America, a Laodicean church. Where we're indifferent. Blind, unaware, unconcerned even. We almost have this attitude of playfulness when it comes to holiness. Like, oh yeah, that's no big deal. Oh yeah. But I believe that the book of Revelation was written to demonstrate that, hey, you know what? This is a big deal. Hey, you know what? Look at what really is going on behind the scenes. You're up against a three-pronged assault. The beast, which is the governmental systems of the world that are arrayed against you. The false prophet, which is, which is a heresy, false religion that comes from within the church. And the harlot, which is the seduction of the human condition. You are confronted by all three of those every day of your life. And we are often Laodicean about the whole thing. So the idea of Revelation is to say, let's go church. Jesus walks among the lampstands. And he tends the fruit so that every branch will produce fruit. Those that do not produce fruit, what? Will be cut off and what? Thrown into the fire. We don't like that last part. We like the first part that he tends to the fruit so that we'll all bear, well, he tends to us so that we'll bear fruit. But what happens if we don't? We don't like that aspect of God and we typically don't teach it. But these three, these three letters to these three churches demonstrate that God is very serious about this kind of stuff. Very, very, very serious. And I think it's a clarion call to the, especially the American church. Wake up. There is a force and an evil that is arrayed against you that is doing its best to destroy your lampstand. And very often, and very often, um, we almost, it's almost like we participate in it. So I've been cut to the core reading this stuff, and I, I hope that if you guys will spend some time in it, that the Lord will begin to quicken some zeal in each of you toward 
what holiness actually means. Anybody know what holiness actually means? Yeah, simply that. We, we reduce holiness to an idea of being good. But it just means to, be, to live as one set apart. And that's where we have to go back to, I think, really, uh, in this day and age. So, book of Revelation uh, is designed to show us and is intended to show us what we are up against as a people. All right, now we move into... So we've got the commendation, and, and this is really good. Jesus always comes to us, and he will always come to his own with, in gentleness and in love. The first thing he always does is he comes and he says, look, you're mine. I love you. I, you you're doing a great job in this area. I commend you for these things, but I have this. Repent, and he gives us that space to repent. And then if we don't repent, he turns up the heat, and turns up the heat, and turns up the heat. And eventually, as we'll see with the Thyatiran church, there comes a time for judgment. And I, I want, even in my own life, to hear him when he says, repent, so that I don't have to endure the judgment of God, because he will judge the people in his church. Remember what it says, judgment begins with us. So... We, we need to get back to um, we're set when you need it. <laughs> There's a noise. <laughs> All right. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam who ta taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold fast to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, so we talked about the Nicolaitans already. What did we say about them? Anybody remember what, what, they, what these guys were all about? Interaction time. Compromise. I can repeat one word things. So the Nicolaitans were about compromise. Now what does that mean exactly? What is, what, is the, what is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Go along to get along. Right? Syncretism. Oh, just blend all of this together. It's all right. In an effort to be, here's the word, tolerant. Oh, let's don't offend those guys. We certainly wouldn't want to do that because after all, God is love and he would never offend. He's too gracious and kind to do that. Right? That's what we hear nowadays. So the Nicolaitans were really good at watering down the truth of the gospel and removing the witness of the church by syncretism, by joining, amalgamation, by compromise, by saying, hey, it's okay. You can incorporate this aspect and this aspect. You don't have to be so rigid here. 
So we've already talked about this, but the, the Pergamums were actually involved in something even more than this amalgamation of religions. What were they, what was going on in the church? Anybody remember the story from the Old Testament? Balaam. History time. Balaam was a false prophet. What did he do? Two things. Let's do the microphone because he's going to, he's going to, because if, if, if he doesn't, I'm going to have to repeat the whole thing. <laughs> As I recall, and sometimes my memory is suspect, but uh, he was uh, recruited by a, a king who was an enemy of Israel. Balak. Balak, thank yep. you, yep. to uh, curse uh, Israel. Yep. But uh, when he got up on a hill or something, someplace like that, he... He could not, right. no doubt, from the power of the Holy Spirit coming in. So, yeah, it was the first occasion. And the second occasion, he was responsible for causing the uh, eating of the sacrificial food, mm -hmm. which was verboten, you know, was not, not allowed. Not. Yeah, and how did he do it? So, Balaam was a, a prophet for hire. All right, and Balak went to him and said, hey, I know that you are a prophet. There's these people here that we're all afraid of. I need you to come and curse them because I know that the Lord hears your voice. So Balak, Balaam basically worked out a deal for finances, right? And, and he said, okay, for this amount of money, I'll go and do it. And so Balak paid him, and he went, and he, he took him up to a hill overlooking the encampment of the Israelites. And Balaam went to speak a curse, and all of a sudden, everything that came out of his mouth was a blessing. And then Balak went nuts and said, I paid you this amount of money, blah, 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 and um, you do this. And he goes, listen, all I can do is what the Lord has me say. So he did this, I think, a couple times. I want to say it was three times. Three times. And at one of the times, this is where we have the story of the, what? The talking donkey. Right? Where Balaam is actually going to do this, and he's riding a donkey, and the donkey all of a sudden veers off the road and plows into a wall. And Balaam is incensed, and he starts beating this donkey, and the donkey says, hey, I'm just trying to save your life, which would freak me right out. Um, and then all of a sudden, Balaam's eyes were opened, and what did he see standing in the road? Angel with a sword. Very key to this story and what's going on at Pergamum. The words of the one with the two-edged sword, who stood in the way of Balaam, an angel with a sword. How did Balaam die? By the sword later on. All right? So... Initially, Balaam went, and he couldn't curse Israel, so Balak was beside himself, so Balaam turned and said, here, I got an idea for you. Send your women in to seduce the men of the camp. Cause them to engage in things that are against the law of God, and if you do this, then the protection of God will be removed. And then we have the story that that began to happen, and... Moses called a meeting, 
And it's like, what's going on here? And right in the middle of the meeting, one of the guys from Israel brings a, a Moabite woman who is leading the Israelites astray right in to the meeting into a tent which Moses called, and I can't remember who it was, he called one of the priests. Uh, one of the priests ran in and drove a, a spear through both of them. And then Moses called that particular order of priests to wage a war on the camp. And what happened? It was 24,000 people were killed. Okay? So that's the story of Balaam. And this is what Jesus is saying is going on in Pergamum. You are tolerating, you have those among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And what did Balaam do? Jesus tells him, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before my people. So there was a, a teaching going on at Pergamum that was putting a stumbling block in front of the people. That the teaching itself was a stumbling block. Okay? So, George Bernard Shaw says this. Listen to me quote somebody that's not a theologian. George Bernard Shaw says this. Beware of false knowledge. It is more dangerous than ignorance. And in this case, that's what's going on. Pergamum, you have false teaching going on. This is a reference, what's going on here, to the internal compromise with false teaching. The Pergamum church had been able to resist the external pressures of persecution. So what does the enemy do? He goes on the inside. This is a warning to us. We may be able to be really, really strong. Here you are, drawing a stick person. And, you, and you've got all this stuff coming out like this. And you're able to resist what all of this stuff that's coming at you. Right? You're able to stand. I'm not going to commit adultery on my wife. I'm not going to, you know, just because it's legal, I'm not going to smoke pot. I'm not going to. Whatever, whatever it is. I'm not going to compromise in any way. I'm, I'm going to be righteous in my business dealings. I'm going to be righteous in my, my money. I'm going to declare the name of God correctly as best as I can in an external way. So, But what ends up happening is that we'll go out somewhere and we get around a group of people and all of a sudden there's some kind of teaching that's a bit off. And so we start in our own head becoming the enemy attacks us internally. So we, we resist from the outside really well, but the enemy comes in. And this is different than what was going on at Smyrna. Smyrna, well, at Pergamum as well, they were getting a very strong outward, but Smyrna was definitely getting hit from the outside. Pergamum was not getting hit so hard because we understand that Antipas was a one-time deal. It wasn't rampant there. So it's because, and even when it was, the church stood tall. So the enemy knew this. So what happens? The enemy uses the false prophet. Because the beast wasn't having an effect here. 
So player number two, the false prophet, steps in. And we're going to see player number three in Thyatira, which is the harlot Babylon. Okay? So here we have the false prophet. Uh, the, the attack of the false prophet. Smyrna, we had the attack of the beast. Here we have the attack of the false prophet, which is an internal distortion or, or uh, attack on the truth through compromise and through... That's why I said at the beginning, it's very important for us to understand where our opinions encroach upon proper theology. How many of you wrestle with that? Come on, be honest. We wrestle with adding our opinion to what we understand that the Scripture says. And, in, and especially in Western Christianity, we do that really, really well. We're really good at that. You know, Rob Bell, look at that. Well, I don't think that God, a loving God, would send anybody to hell. What's the, pre, what's the, what's the introductory statement there? I don't think. So because his opinion now out, is in contradiction to Scripture, he chooses his opinion and writes a book about it and retires well. So um, this is what's going on at Pergamum. There's this, this idea of a false teaching that's come from within. So you have some of those who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Uh, we already talked about this. Balaam is an Old Testament prophet for hire who was the one who advised Balak, the king of Moab, to induce the Israelites into idol worship so that they would lose the protection of God. This incident made such an impact on subsequent generations that it became a proverb or proverbial for spiritual declension. Um, the idea that, that this... What... The effect of what Balaam did was, was, had such an impact that for later generations, the, it became a proverb. I don't know the proverb, so I can't say it to you, but it became proverbial for spiritual declension. When people were in spiritual decline, they referenced Balaam. Okay? So, um, there are two compromises here. Eating food sacrificed to idols and the practice of sexual immorality. Now, it, it may be that both of these are a reference to what was going on in idol celebrations at, uh, at some of the feasts of some of the, the uh, cult celebrations. Does anybody know what went on at these, what was required in the, the worship of these gods? Anybody? They had temple prostitutes. Okay. What else? That was Molech. Yeah, they did that quite extensively, and that was one of the big deals in, in Israel. Um, let me ask you a question. Do we sacrifice our children today? In many ways, we do. We pull back in horror over the idea of passing our children through the fire as they did to Moloch, and yet we 
lay our children on the altar of idols incessantly in the, in the, in a, in the American church. And I have a few examples if anybody would like to dialogue with me about that later. Um, but nevertheless, one, two of the things that we have here in this specific thing is when they, when they would get together, now this was a very, understand that, that the, the religious culture in these, in these societies permeated every aspect of that society, every aspect. It, it, it had to do with the way you bought and sold. It had to do with the people that you hung out with. It had to do with your economic standing. It had to do basically with stuff that you even sold. Everything about your, your life and, and the way that you conducted your life in these pagan cultures was oriented around the cult that was the primary or whatever deity it was that you served. And one of the main ways that you served these gods was to participate in their gatherings. Now, these gatherings, kind of like what we do here, we gather together to worship. That's what they would do. And the, one of the first things that they would do was they would have a meal together. My wife and I were, were listening to a, a CD this week about uh, how to reach out and work with our kids. Gen, uh, what is it? Gen Xers? Gen Z. And one of the things that they were talking about was having a meal together. It says, when you have a meal together, it breaks down all the walls. Right? It, it, there's this thing. What did Jesus say? Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go have a meal with you. They broke bread together. Whenever bread breaking was always, in, in many instances throughout Scripture, a covenantal activity. And so one of the things that they would do in these pagan cultures was they would get together and they would have a feast. And they would serve you the food. Now this food, before they served it to you, was dedicated to whatever deity the festival was in honor of. Okay? So you'd be sit down at the feast and they'd bring you a big slab of meat. Well, that meat had just been, been dedicated to whatever deity whose temple you were in. Okay, along with that, there was always the festivities that soon followed. Well, what were these festivities? Immoral play. It's the best way I can put it. Harlotry, prostitution. Now we... We recoil in this society over sexual promiscuity to some degree. The things that they used to do in Rome and in some of the Greek cultures, they actually called Greeks boy lovers. It was common. They taught this stuff. It was just, there was, there was no guideline. And so that's why Paul was having such a hard time with the Corinthians. You, you, you allow these people to come in because, and they bring with them the sexual promiscuity from these, these cults. So that's what was going on. Now, it's probably what, what uh, Jesus is referring to in Pergamum, that this is going on. Now, there's also a spiritual aspect of this. Whatever in the Old Testament Jesus refers, especially in Hosea and places like that, when he refers to adultery or being promiscuous or breaking covenant with me or being playing the harlot, what is, he, is he actually talking about? Cheating on God in a physical sense, 
No, spiritually. So there's a, a double-pronged thing going on here where there was probably some of this stuff where people were actually eating idols and participating in the sexual activity afterwards. But the primary issue was the harlotry that was going on covenantally. You were violating your covenant with your true spiritual husband, who is Christ Jesus. Okay? And it's easy for people to say, well, I didn't do this, this, and this, but what's going on in your mind? Remember what Jesus said on the Mount of, uh, on, on the Beatitudes. He said, you've heard it said that if you lie with another woman, you, that you shall not lie with another woman. Right? But I say to you, what? If you even look at her. So that's this dichotomy here that we're seeing in these letters. That Yes, there was probably some of the actual physical thing where you actually did lie with somebody who wasn't your wife. And you probably did eat meat that was offered to idols. But there was the other aspect, which, you, which was that you were breaking covenant. You were breaking your marital covenant with God. Balak had brought in a, uh, Balaam had brought in a stumbling block to the church at Pergamum and was causing them to be, to, to be spiritually uh, uh, compromised. Yeah. They were practicing spiritual infidelity. And I think when we start as a church, try, as an individual person, when we start to think about our lives and how we honor God in our covenant relationship with him, and we take it out of the actual nuts and bolts of what we do physically and move it over to the truth where our heart and our mind are, it becomes really, really, really close to home. Because most of us would say in this room, I've never slept with, my wife. I slept with somebody other than my wife. I've never cheated on my wife. Or women, I've never cheated on my husband. But how many of us may entertain the occasional thought. So those are, those are things where it, it comes down right down to the granular level. And that's what's going on here in Pergamum. The fact that this has been introduced and this was a beginning. The seedbed had been laid. There were things that were going on that were starting to compromise this church. And I want you to notice that Jesus does not pass judgment on Pergamum. He's warning Pergamum. Because it's probably very clear that Pergamum hadn't yet really started to engage in this kind of stuff. But they were starting to hold to some of the teachings. The idea was that they were going, mm, yeah, you know what, this doesn't seem too bad. And it was starting to work its way into. So there's no real record of the people at Pergamum actually sinning like they did at Thyatira. Now at Thyatira, the difference when Jesus came was in Pergamum, he says, you should repent before I come and deal with you with the sword of my mouth. At, at Thyatira, he said, I gave you time to repent and you refused. So even in that way, there is a progression that we're seeing in this chiastic form where at Pergamum, Jesus gives you time to repent. At Thyatira, the time's over. In Pergamum, I will come to you and deal with you with my sharp two-edged sword. In Thyatira, I'm here. And I'm executing judgment. I will throw her on a sickbed and I will kill all of those who have participated with her in her sin. 
Those are harsh words. But they're prefaced by the statement, I gave you time to repent. And so this is what's going on in Pergamum. God is giving, through Jesus, is giving them time to repent. And he is saying, listen, there are those of you that are listening to this false teacher, this Balaam. Deal with it. If you don't deal with it, I will. And I will execute judgment. And so that's where we see this chiastic, the idea of toleration with the call to repentance. Here, false teaching with a call to repentance in Pergamum, which is ignored in Thyatira, and you have sin, blatant, and judgment. So there's that progression there. And then what we see finally in Sardis is the outcome of unrepentant sin, prolonged unrepentant sin, which is you die. Okay? So that's the chiastic form there. Let's see what else is there. So what does he say? Those of you who overcome this, I'm going to leave this on a high note, those of you who overcome this will receive some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a name on it that only the receiver of that stone will know. So does anybody understand what that is? What is the hidden manna? We're going to do this really fast so I can stop at Pergamum today. What's the hidden manna? Anybody know? Christ is the hidden manna, right? So there's a lot. What is the hidden manna? Why is it hidden? Oh, there you go. It's not for everybody. Now, there's a lot of Jewish lore that's wrapped up in this. Like, for example, a lot of Jewish people, when they read this, understood that this was a reference to Jeremiah, who supposedly saved the Ark of the Covenant from the destruction by the Babylonians when that, when that occurred. And within the Ark of the Covenant is what? The jar of manna. And so he secreted that away and hid it and, and until the, the lore is, until Messiah comes and then the Ark would be revealed again. And the manna would be. This is a reference to feasting on Jesus. It's also a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which is the ultimate goal of us as Christians. Remember, all of this has to do with our eternal reward. So when Jesus says, to those who overcome through this life, makes it through this life, unstained, I will give them, and then he gives us different things that have to do with eternity. And in this particular case, it's the hidden manna. And this has to do with the idea of the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will make it to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the hidden manna, which is something you do not see right now, will be given to you. And it's a reference back to what happened in the, in the Scripture, right? Uh, in, the, uh, in the Exodus. Now, what's the white stone? Anybody know what this is? I will give you a white stone. This has perplexed commentators forever. I'll tell you, I don't know what it is. I can tell you what a lot of people think it is. One, the first thing is, is that in judicial cases, especially in Jewish judicial cases, 
if a guilty verdict was passed on a person, they passed over a black stone. The jurors did. If an exoneration, or if you were found innocent, a white stone was given to the judge. So it means justification. It's also whenever they would have a feast or admittance into a particular feast, they were often sent a white stone, which was your, basically your ticket of admittance. Okay? So there's that aspect of it. Uh, there's a bunch more. Um, Some, some say that this has to do directly with the manna, that when the manna would come, they would say it looks like a white gemstone. It came down and looked like a, a white stone. It had a white color to it. So a lot of people understand it to be a reference in tandem with the manna. Okay? Still others understand it to be a reference of the umum and thurum. That on the breastplate, which is called I can't think of the name of it. So Cheshon. I'm, I'm saying it wrong. I know I am. Choshan was the breastplate that the priests wore. And what was on the breastplate? The, Jim, 12 stones. And in a pouch, especially on that Choshan, was, uh, was a pouch. And what was carried in the pouch? Um, Thurum. Right? And so what was the umum thurum? There's a debate right now whether that was actually one stone or two. Many people say that because of the Greek wording there, or the way that the, the Hebrew wording is, is it could be just one item with two sides. Okay, so, so what did they do with that? They would inquire of God, and somehow God would speak to them with what that is. Now, interestingly enough, on the Choshan, there is a particular stone that is of great value that is absent. That is white in color. Not a pearl. That's a good call. I never thought of that one. A diamond. So, on those stones, what was written on those stones? The names of the tribes of Israel. Now, the reason that they, so they say that what, since the diamond was absent on the Choshan, it was probably an umum thurum, and, and on the umum and thurum, many people believe that the ineffable name of God, the Tetragametron, I just like throwing that word around, uh, which is the four Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, the ineffable name of God was written on the, on the diamond. And so when the priest would enter the holy and inquire of God, he would pull the um, the um and thurum out, which was they think was a diamond. And on it was written the name of God, the ineffable name of God, and that nobody knew except for the priest. And so I like that particular one. It's speculation. I just like it, so I go with that one because it has to do with the name. So what Jesus is saying is I will give you a name I will give you a white stone, which is justification and admittance into the, the banquet. I like that aspect of it. But the white stone has a name on it that only those who receive it 
will know. Now, what is that name? Is it, is it, so a lot of people interpret that, that, that no one will know. There'll be a name on it. And so a lot of people say, well, it's our new name, right? But there's nothing in Revelation that suggests that, that there's anything that we get a new name. What is all often said is, is that when we're sealed in Revelation, what is it said? It's opposite of the, the mark. What is the sealing? So the mark is the number of the beast on your forehead or your hand. What is the sealing? The ineffable name of God on your forehead. Read it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and that is true. Yes. In Revelation, I believe it's 8, 7, 8, where the, the 144,000 are sealed, they are sealed with the name of God on their forehead. So the idea being here is that whoever receives this stone receives the name of God, which is what is said throughout Revelation, that those that are sealed will receive the name of God on their forehead and are sealed for eternity. So the white stone has to do with justification being admitted into the marriage supper of the Lamb where the hidden manna will be received because it has the name on the white stone of God that only God knows. Okay? So we're going to stop. Any questions real quick? I'm way past. Any questions? Everybody okay? All right. Next week we're going to talk about Thyatira. And, um, and talk about the execution of God's judgment in the face of a non-repentant people. Should be a lot of fun. Um, Father, we're grateful that you are a merciful and gracious God. That in all of these things, we hear your heart, we hear your voice calling to your church to be set apart unto you. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And a heart to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.